the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. And again, uh, for those who uh, want to stay in contact with me and with the show, danproftshow.com is the website. Uh, at Dan Prof Show or at Dan Proft are my Twitter handles. Best places to get me. You can also get uh, Dan Prof Show on Facebook, of course. So wanted to convey that contact information. So uh, Wednesday evening into yesterday, Democrats thought they were having pretty good days. The combination of the left Parnas interviews on CNN and MSNBC combined with what we uh, touched upon yesterday, which was that uh, GAO proclamation that the Trump administration had violated the law in holding the military aid to Ukraine last summer when it did, even, of course, though it was ultimately transmitted. That's disputed by the White House Office of Management and Budget. But uh, this was something that provided Pelosi and House Democrats the opportunity to say, hey, 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 you know, all this information that's coming out. And Adam Schiff saying yesterday, we expect more evidence to come out. You have to bring all of this evidence into the fold and consider that as you move to the trial phase of this process. Well, maybe this isn't going to work out quite as well as they thought. This new information never seems to, does it? Never seems to. For as uh, many unsavory characters as Trump has surrounded himself with over the years, uh, some of uh, those personnel decisions coming back to create complications for the president, the heroes, the left anoints, tend not to serve them very well either. Uh, to wit, Michael Avenatti, Michael Cohen. Where do those two Michaels find themselves at present compared to the president? Uh, and so Lev Parnas. Well, uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Vadim Pristeko, uh, did an interview with Christian Amanpour on CNN and uh, wasn't quite the way she thought it would go, I suspect, because Mr. Pristeko who's been with President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, since before he was president, is the foreign minister, so he is the point man on these geopolitical matters. He is the one who is in the communication channel, the official communication channel, between Ukraine and the White House, between Ukraine and members of Congress. And he had this to say about uh, Lev Parnas and his credibility. It's all, all, all Ukrainian media as well, today and yesterday, and strangely enough, my name was not mentioned, although I'm Minister of Foreign Affairs. And I, frankly, I never spoke with this individual. And again, frankly, I don't, I don't trust any word he is now saying. The assistance which we, he is uh, referring to was reviewed each and every year annually, at least twice, and half a year at the end of the year. So we knew that this assistance is to be reviewed. Sometimes it would be cut because of the, some political understanding of what is to be done in Ukraine, sometimes being embraced, which is now what we're observing. At the end of the year, we would receive even more than it was planned. 
I, I understand that this individual, which I don't know personally, but he is now trying to save his own case. And I, again, I don't trust what he's saying. And I would, you know, I was so tired of these questions about the, our role in impeachment. What we are trying to tell Americans that we are, we are so happy to have bilateral support from both parties. And we will be happy to have it as well. Thank you. Yeah, so when do House Democrats, Senate Democrats, their handmaidens in the D.C. press corps, when do they start accusing Zelensky and Prosecco of being liars? Remember, it was House Republican John Radcliffe during the impeachment hearings in the House who said, uh, understand something. To impeach one president, you have to impeach two. To say President Trump was up to no good, you have to say President Zelensky is a liar. And by implication, also up to no good. So why aren't we hearing that? Is Zelensky lying? Is Prosteco lying? Prosteco went on to uh, say, you know what? We don't need unofficial communication channels. I never met with Rudy Giuliani or Lev Parnas because I didn't need to. The communication channels, the official communication channels are just fine, thank you, and they're working just fine, thank you. I never met Rudy, I never met this Parnas and all other name mentioned. In the, I believe that people are not try, trying to raise their political importance. I never had the chance, and frankly, we don't need these channels. Our channels of communication with Americans are well established. Right. And uh, as to one of the assertions that Lev Parnas made in his bombshell interview with Rachel Anderson, Maddow, Cooper... That uh, Mike Pence was dispatched by President Trump to put the squeeze on Zelensky to investigate Burisma and the Bidens, to communicate that no investigation, no aid. And the reason that neither the president nor the vice president showed up at Zelensky's inauguration was to send a message of their displeasure by the lack of an investigation launched against Burisma and or the Bidens. Well, there's an alternative explanation offered by the foreign minister. I can tell you why. We had uh, some, some blame can be on our side because we had to do it in a very fast way. President Zelensky wanted to leave the parliament free from, from his new presidency. And we have just a couple of days to make it legal. We've been, been, we've been limited by ourselves by time. So we gave quite a short notice to all the nations. And in our case, in the American case, Secretary Perry came. We believe that we would have somebody else if we want to if we give more, more time for the uh, foreign delegations. So it was not a big deal for us. At least we didn't feel it. Whatever these individuals are saying, we invited, given just one week prior notice to delegations, and we received Secretary Perry, which was a good representation and good level, and I was at the conversations with Secretary Perry as well. Mm-hmm. And anything of the sort you were just referring never been mentioned in none of, this, of these conversations. The, the squeeze never happened. Uh, we were fine with it. Hmm. So I guess you'll have to suspend those hashtag President Pelosi tweets for the moment. You got to impeach. You got to impeach Trump. You got to impeach uh, Zelensky. You got to impeach Pence. Yeah, I'm going to put Pelosi in the Oval Office. You can fire Barr and elevate Schiff to AG and all will be right with the world. huh? Oh, and to the matter of the uh, back and forth between Ukraine and the White House on the matter of military aid. Uh, Prosecco talks about the many conversations he had on the topic. I know personally Ambassador Salnant, and I have to again remind you that he was a political appointee. He was not on the formal side of the State Department. He was also close to the circles which were sort of trying to get in their own business-like way. Maybe he was bringing a message, but if you read even his statement, he never talked to me, although I was the uh, advisor and then Minister of Foreign Affairs, about any pre or, or any, any unofficial 
catch channels or ways of what we can do to get closer to, to President Trump. No. He was talking to some people who believed was instrumental at that time. I personally see that we are okay with the support we have right now and we don't need, sorry to be blunt, and we don't need this unofficial support. It's not on the level, at the level when we have these American, Americans already. We can have the support. And if we are told that the assistance, military assistance, can be affected by some lack of reform, this is a normal conversation we had with Americans so many times before. And during this particular year you're describing right now, we had a couple of times to explain to members of Congress that we understand that the system is not coming from the sky. It is connected to some reforms we have to do to changes. And we were doing so it was not about political gains on any, any side. We heard this, this assistance is important to us. We told them that it is important and it is connected to some reforms which we were doing. It doesn't sound like a guy representing a country who feels like he was being extorted by the President of the United States. Love it. Mm. Oh, and by the way, with that uh, other uh, government accounting office matter, uh, the argument that uh, it was a violation of federal strictures to withhold the aid uh, last summer when it was withheld for that brief period of time. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, House and Senate Democrats will want to go back and impeach President, uh, President Obama after the fact just so that they can maintain the moral and intellectual consistency, which is their calling card, of course. Uh, the uh, GOA back in 2014... The, the same GOA, GAO, excuse me, GAO, back in 2014, ruled that Obama's prisoner swap, you remember this one, five Taliban terrorists at Gitmo in exchange for deserter Bo Bergdahl? The GAO ruled that that exchange violated federal law. Quote, the Department of Defense violated Section 8111 of the Department of Defense Appropriations Act 2014 when it transferred five individuals detained at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to the nation of Qatar, without providing at least 30-day notice to certain congressional committees. And uh, it goes on to get into even more of the weeds. DOD should report its Anti-Deficiency Act violation as required by law, so on and so forth. In this case, the uh, duty to inform Congress could have been easily satisfied and when it's not necessary to violate the law in order to carry out the exchange, wrote George Washington law professor Jonathan Turley at the time seems more likely this was done for political purposes to avoid opposition in Congress to that exchange. So a extra executive action by President Obama. Well, you want to set that record straight? So maybe Wednesday and Thursday, the GOA, GAO pronouncement and the Parnas interview doesn't advance the cause of the Democrat Socialists as much as they thought it would. This is the Dan Prop Show. I'll take it, wrap it up. I'll take it. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Let's move on from uh, impeachment theater and uh, talk about uh, theater of the absurd. That would be the 2020 Democrat Socialist primary. Good piece from Kim Strassel in the Washington, uh, excuse me, Wall Street Journal. S- uh, not stay woke, go broke, but uh, go broke politically. Stay woke, drop out. That's the takeaway from the 
rapidly narrowing Democrat field and smart liberals warned of it after 2016. Uh, Mark Lilla points out Strauss, who's an academic writing the New York Times faulted Mrs. Clinton for molding her campaign around the rhetoric of diversity, calling out explicitly to African-American and Latino LGBT and women voters at every stop. Successful politics, he noted, is always rooted in visions of shared destiny. Right. And so what do we have from uh, the Democrat socialists generally and so many of the candidates who have uh, fallen by the wayside? Really, uh, some who never got out of the starting blocks like uh, Cory Booker, the politics of accusation. Yeah. Uh, She goes through. The list of casualties does Kim Strassel. Kamala Harris, uh, Reparation H, created the big viral moment when she tore into Joe Biden, absolving him of being a racist, even as she accused him of working with segregationists to oppose school busing. That was Kamala Harris's high watermark, you recall. Senator Kristen Gillibrand, <laughs> who really is laughable, remarkable that uh, she is a senator from New York and the transformation she's undergone from being a a relatively moderate Democrat congressman from upstate New York to being uh, as woke a walker as there was on the uh, as there was in the field. Uh, Strassel writes of her Gillibrand didn't hold a race card, but ran a campaign about women's equality, attacking any Democrat who didn't measure to her standards on abortion, child care, violence against women. Cory Booker campaigned relentlessly on systemic racism and social justice. He torched uh, Biden for the 1994 crime bill. Uh, warned a nation of an all-out assault on black voting rights. Bobby O, you know, he uh, was lamenting his whiteness at every turn, going all in for reparations, not to mention going all in against people of faith, right? If you don't believe what he believes with respect to cultural Marxist policies, then uh, he was happy to, to move to take away your 501c3 status, houses of worship, Mm. Julian Castro uh, ran his campaign and complaints about discriminatory housing policy and uh, violence against trans and and, and indigenous women. And uh, now we're at Elizabeth Warren, who is attempting to rescue her campaign with the sexism claim, as so presented in this week's debate and, of course, in the CNN story that preceded the debate. This is the politics of exclusion, these candidates and these gambits that uh, I've just gone through per Kim Strassel's recitation. It explains why I feel that began as the most diverse in Democrat history is now coming down to a competition between two old white men. How about them apples? Candidates who speak primarily to subsections of the country are by necessity excluding everybody else. All voters want to know what a candidate is going to do specifically for them and for the country as a whole. And while many voters view issues in a moral context, few voters feel a moral imperative to vote for candidates solely because they are black or female or gay. The whole sort of trans, um, uh, I'm sorry, intersectional scoring system is just not one that most voters use. This is uh, the, you know, the, 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 the faculty lounge, faculty lounge constituency, but it's not the body politic. My words, not Strassel's. Strassel's words now. Identity politics is also by necessity vote losing because it requires accusations. And this is a key word. 
as much as you want to talk about Elizabeth Warren uh, faltering because of her uh, Marx and Engels reader full of white papers on all the policy topics uh, with bigger government as the ubiquitous policy solution. It's that she's a scold. She's a scold. And then not in the way of, you know, I'm scolding you to look, look after you because I'm concerned about you. I'm scolding you because you're not good enough. Accusations. Miss Warren is getting blowback now after implying that Sanders is a misogynist, calling him a liar. Sanders supporters are lacing Miss Warren on social media with snake emojis, declaring a hashtag never Warren campaign. Even if she stages a comeback, she's alienated a key base of support. Uh, what was Mr. Booker's vision for the country? Did Ms. Harris ever nail down a plan for health care? Was Mr. Castro capable of talking beyond Section 1325 of immigration law? Now, remember, he was the uh, Castro was perhaps the most vociferous. Everybody's hands go up, but he was the most vociferous in talking about decriminalizing illegal border crossings. You know how you eliminate illegal border crossings? Make it stop making it illegal. Strassel writes, the notion that a Democrat primary audience that nominated Obama more than a decade ago somehow rejected these candidates because of their race or sex is laughable. Not to mention, you still have identitarian politics being played. I mean, that's the only reason that Mayor Pete is in this race and on the stage. The make history piece of it. I mean, yes, that he talks at a room temperature and that he's half the age of the front runners, but it's because he's gay. So th- this is not to say that identity politics is completely out of this race, of course it's still there, but it's how you handle it. Strassel suggests what uh, has been rejected is a form of politics that pits groups of Americans against one another. It's never been a winner, and the sooner woke candidates awaken to the reality, the better for them and their the country. Yeah, although I'm not in any hurry for them to have that awakening, uh, because I think there's real opportunity for President Trump. And you know what? It's part of this potential realignment that's going on. The left knows it. For example, this piece in The Atlantic, Democrats should be worried about the Latino vote. The first warning sign of the new year came three days into 2020. Speaking at a rally of conservative evangelicals in Florida, President Trump riffed on the targeted killing of uh, Iran's Qasem Soleimani before thousands assembled in the King Jesus International Ministry megachurch outside of Miami. What was missed in the coverage of that speech, because it focused on Soleimani and Iranian policy, of course, was the location, the country's largest Hispanic evangelical congregation. Uh, Domingo Garcia, the national president for the League of United Latin American Citizens, said this should be a serious red flag to Democrats. Trump's outreach to conservative Latinos in the South serves as a warning sign for deeper concern several Latino leaders and political activists shared that they are dissatisfied with the level of engagement they're seeing from the Democrat primary candidates and noticing the same kind of poor strategizing by candidates that yield disappointing turnout among Hispanic voters in 2016. And don't forget, for all of the demagoguing Trump as uh, anti-Latino and some sort of white supremacist, he got the same percentage of the Latino vote in 2016 that Mitt Romney had gotten four years earlier. And given where unemployment is in the black community, in the Latino community, and the outreach that President Trump is doing that started in 2016, so he's not a Johnny-come-lately, remember him in Charlotte, in a primarily black audience just days before the November 2016 election, where he essentially said, hey, what do you got to lose? If things aren't going well for you when your people are in, why don't you give me a shot? Because I'm really serious about trying to help you help yourself to make a better life for you and your family. 
And has that not occurred for so many families, regardless of race, over the last three years? It's a pretty simple and powerful case to make, particularly compared to the one that the scolds are making on the left. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Uh, President Trump yesterday against the backdrop of uh, these uh, trade deals that he's uh, getting done, flying to and fro, first the phase one deal with China, then the USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. He wants to focus on the uh, uh, resurgent economy under his presidency while the House Democrats, House and Senate Democrats, focus on impeachment. Here's what he had to say about the distinction between the two parties. This was a perfect phone call. Think of it. The president of the United States, who's led the greatest growth, the greatest, the greatest economic revival of any country anywhere in the world is the United States, as big as it is. We're doing better than any other country by far. Our unemployment numbers are the best they've been in over 50 years. African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American, unemployment, the best in the history of our country. And I've got to go through a hoax, a phony hoax put out by the Democrats so they can try and win an election that hopefully they're not going to win. It was put out for purposes of winning an election. Our country is doing great. Meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi is saying, uh, I'll see your perfect phone call and raise you an infallible impeachment. This is just another avoiding of the facts and the truth on their part. They don't want to see documents. They don't want to hear from eyewitnesses. Uh, they don't want to, they want to ignore anything new that comes up. We saw a, a, a strong case uh, and, and infallible, undeniable case for the impeachment of the president. So that no future president would ever think that she or he could get away with what President Trump uh, has been getting away with in his view. Any further evidence should not be avoided. And now it's in the, the ball is in the court of the Senate. It certainly is. The man of the hour is Mitch McConnell, and he took to the Senate floor yesterday to say just that. As Hamilton put it, only the Senate with, quote, confidence enough in its own situation, end quote, can preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality between an individual accused and the representatives of the people, his accusers. So, Madam President, the House's hour is over. The Senate's time is at hand. It's time for this proud body to honor our founding purpose. For more on the Senate time being at hand, we're pleased to be joined by Jenny Beth Martin. She is the co-founder and honorary chairman of the Tea Party Patriots. Jenny Beth, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So with respect to uh, the uh, perfect phone call versus the infallible uh, case for impeachment, uh, McConnell is in large measure going to be the arbiter of that based on where he is able to lead the caucus. What should Senate Majority Leader McConnell be doing against the backdrop of those pronouncements from the competing interests? 
Well, I think that at, at this point, um, what once this starts, he he won't have as much influence because it is, and it has begun at this point because um, Chief Justice Roberts will be presiding. Mm-hmm. But anything that Chief Justice Roberts decides can be overturned by a simple majority of senators. So I think that during times when they are not in in the trial. Um, McConnell will have to be figuring out where the senators stand on various issues. Well, right. Exactly. So where should those senators stand? Where should he be leading those senators, particularly those that are, uh, you know, a little bit more squishy like a Romney or a Murkowski or a Collins? Should he be saying, look, we're going to have the House managers present their case, the the president present his, and then I'm calling the vote. I don't want to do witnesses. Well, he... um, Yes, I would. I think that that's what I I would prefer at this point to happen, just so that we can be through with the process and we can acquit the president. Um, what What I think is important to understand is that right now he he has been able to do that. We were able to get Senator Collins to say she wanted it to be very much like it was with the Clinton proceeding and hear from the House manager and managers and the reply from the president before she decides on witnesses. And um, I think that it, it, it won't just be a matter of McConnell calling for the vote. It's going to be a matter of making sure that he's watching what people like Senator Collins and the others who are a bit more squishy are doing to make sure that they are getting their, their questions answered before it gets to a point where we're going down a long process of potentially having a lot of witnesses. We're talking to Jenny Beth Martin. She's the uh, chairman of the Tea Party Patriots. When we come back, Jenny Beth, I want to pick up our discussion about uh, impeachment and also get some perspective with the close of the decade of the Tea Party, where the Tea Party stands uh, now that we're entering uh, the 2020s. Jenny Beth Martin, Tea Party Patriots, will be right back with her. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Jenny Beth Barton, co-founder and honorary chairman of the Tea Party Patriots, talking about impeachment and uh, one suggestion that was made, uh, Jenny Beth, by Andy McCarthy over at National Review is because the House is trying to treat this as sort of a a, uh, a running grand jury. And so when Lev Parnas gives an interview, as he did the other day, or when the GAO issues a statement, as it did yesterday, that all needs to be folded into the impeachment inquiry and the Senate needs to do the job that the House didn't do on these matters. Uh, so what McCarthy suggests is, number one, the Senate shouldn't take that bait. So they should hold off on the trial, hold the trial in abeyance until the record is finalized, whatever it's going to be, uh, or dismiss the articles of impeachment without prejudice to tell the House to finish its job, complete whatever record is to be completed, and then bring the articles of impeachment back if they so choose. Uh, do you agree with what Andy McCarthy is suggesting, either part of that, or should uh, McConnell do what he seems to do, which is seem, he's seemingly inclined to do, which is say, 
the the record is complete as far as I'm concerned. Whatever happens in the public domain um, is not relevant to the record that you have provided for us per your investigation, and that's the basis on which we're going to make our determination. It's now up to the Senate. If the House wanted to do this, they could and had additional witnesses. They had the opportunity to call additional witnesses. They chose not to. They had the opportunity to wait past Christmas for a vote. They chose not to because they quote unquote said a crime was in process. They said that um, the president presented a clear and present danger to the country. And then after they had their vote on the floor of the House, they waited for nearly a month. So it must not have been as urgent as they thought. And if, if the House wants to go take it back up again, then they, I guess they can go take it back up again with additional articles of impeachment. But at some point, I think that the American people will grow weary of this. And I think they are already seeing through many of um, the shenanigans that we have coming from the House. It's now time. We've, we've started the process in the Senate. The House managers have been named, and it's time to move this process through the Senate. I want to see it happen as quickly as it can happen, and I want the president to be acquitted. Uh, Kellyanne Conway essentially suggested that, yeah, probably about two weeks. Um, it seems to put uh, this on the timeline to be wrapped up before the president is scheduled to give his State of the Union speech in early February. Is that, uh, does that make sense to you? You know, the, you want the president taking uh, the uh, dais uh, for his State of the Union speech with this behind him? Um, I, I would like it to be behind him by the time that he does the State of the Union address. But even if it is not, um, he will still be able to call him out and show that he's still the president of the United States in the middle of all of this during the State of the Union address. He's not going to be removed from office. And so it just, I would like, because we know he's not going to get 67 votes to remove him from office. So I would like it to be over and for us to move through it as quickly as we can. At the same time, I want to make sure that we've done what it takes for the American people to understand that he did not commit a crime and there were no crimes listed in the articles of impeachment and that he has been acquitted, which I think is very important um, to have happen for the sake of our country. And Americans need to understand that as well. Jenny Beth Martin uh, is the chairman of the honorary chairman of the Tea Party Patriots, co-founder. Uh, Jenny Beth, where does the Tea Party stand uh, now a decade removed from its apex, uh, taxed enough already, the revolt against Obamacare, uh, a decade later and with, uh, frankly, a, a Republican administration continuing to pile up debt and spend beyond our means, uh, where is the Tea Party today? Well, we have three core values, personal freedom, economic freedom, and a debt-free future. And there's no argument at all. We still have a lot of work to do to get to a debt-free future, to even get to a balanced budget. And I am hopeful that the president will make a campaign promise that he will work on on moving us to a balanced budget during his second term. As far as the other two values, personal freedom and economic freedom, I think that we are seeing more economic freedom with the tax cuts and especially with the reduction in regulations we have seen under President Trump. And as far as personal freedom goes, I think that um, what we're watching, even as this impeachment process moves through both the House and the Senate, is why personal freedom is so important. 
it's understanding what the Constitution is about and understanding that the, the rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution. And I, I, I think that what we've seen with, quote unquote, the deep state against President Trump is very similar to the kind of targeting that we experienced from the IRS as the IRS targeted us. And there was no accountability for it, and they were acting very lawlessly. So um, I think we still have issues with that, but we've exposed more of that, and more Americans are aware, and, and we're making progress in that area. Yeah, there's, uh, I assume, uh, some hope that uh, the pending, uh, ongoing Durham investigation will produce a reckoning with respect to some of the conduct of some senior FBI officials, perhaps some senior CIA officials, perhaps some former Obama administration officials, um, to restore some confidence in it, not only in those agencies, but in law enforcement for people at the highest reaches of government. It's critical that that, that happens. If we don't, the, I think that the very foundation of our government, which rests on trusting a, a trust between the people who are governed and those who are elected to govern, um, that, that there is a trust between between the people and the government. And right now that trust is um, shattered, and maybe if it's not shattered, it's severely fractured. And we need to restore that so that our country can continue to be a strong country in the future. So I think there has to be accountability, and I'm very hopeful that there will be. And while I'm hopeful, I'm still not holding my breath because we saw what happened with um, the IRS targeting. And we've watched so far uh, as government officials have been found to act erroneously and yet never charged with a crime. She is Jenny Beth Martin, co-founder and honorary chairman of the Tea Party Patriots. Jenny Beth Martin, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Late night, come home, work sucks. I know she left me roses by the stairs. Surprises, let me know she cares. Say it ain't so, I will not go. Turn the lights off, carry me home. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We were talking with uh, Jenny Beth Martin from Tea Party Patriots in part about the Durham investigation and how important it is that there is a reckoning. Uh, there's a reckoning with respect to the conduct of senior officials at FBI, potentially at CIA, potentially in the Obama administration, the Obama cabinet from uh, 2016 forward. And uh, so this piece in The New York Times yesterday is uh, worth noting that uh, Jim Comey, uh, Mr. Uh, Diogenes there, is uh, not quite out of the legal woods yet, according to this report. Department of Justice prosecutors reportedly investigating the possibility that former FBI Director Comey leaked a classified Russian intelligence document to the media during the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. The investigation centered around two 2017 articles from The New York Times and The Washington Post, describing the Russian document, which played a key role in, in Comey's unilateral decision to announce in July 16 that the FBI would not pursue charges against Clinton for using her homebrew server, you recall, you know, 
wipe it clean. What do you mean with a call off? The document in question, which Dutch intelligence shared with the United States, includes an analysis of an email exchange between, oh, remember her? Representative DWS with the Todd Christensen lid, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was then chairing the DNC, and Leonard Bernardo, an official with the George Soros-backed nonprofit Open Society Foundations. Wasserman, uh, Wasserman Schultz, DWS, assures Bernardo in the email that then-Attorney General Loretta Lynch would make sure Clinton wasn't charged in the email probe. And then uh, Comey announces the decision in July of 2016 without apprising Loretta Lynch. Department of Justice IG Michael Horowitz is saying in one of his reports in a review of Comey's actions over the Clinton probe that the former FBI director had a, quote, troubling lack of any direct substantive communication, unquote, with Lynch over his decisions. Both of the 2017 articles, New York Times, Washington Post, cite Comey's private concern that if Lynch had announced no charges for, for Clinton, the Russians could have released the document to cast doubt on whether the investigation was ethical. Oh. They also cite Comey's decision not to tell Lynch that he was declining to charge Clinton as a way of protecting the FBI's political independence, making political decisions and decisions based on optics rather than the rule of law as FBI director. It's worth noting. And if you haven't figured out that Comey's a politician yet, then you haven't been paying attention for the last three years. Investigators are, are examining whether Comey's personal lawyer, Daniel Richmond, gave the Russian document to reporters that then used it for the stories in The Times and The Post. Richmond played a key role in a different confirmed leak that Comey orchestrated to hand over memos of his private encounters with Trump in the early days of the Trump administration. Remember, this was the way to prompt the appointment of a special counsel so we could all enjoy two and a half years of the Mueller investigation. So Andy McCabe who lied under oath, lied to the FBI. That was a crime when George Papadopoulos did it. It was a crime alleged uh, against Michael Flynn, who's withdrawn his guilty plea now. But it's a crime when other people do it. What about Dandy McCabe? And what about John Brennan's false statements? And what about Jim Comey's general political skullduggery, including with classified information? And what about the consequences? Well, in the coming months, we're going to get answers to those what abouts. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Good piece from our friend VDH. The new post-Trump Constitution. Here are some of the features ready for the uh, brave new world that the Democrat Socialists have ushered in post-President Trump. Well, currently, and then ultimately they're setting a precedent that will be referred to when uh, some, fortunately, this is the way it goes, some Republicans want to apply their tactics to their people. Number one, private presidential phone calls with foreign leaders will be leaked and printed in major media. Number two, impeachment is now a casual affair, no longer requires a report of Illegal or unethical behavior by a special counsel or special prosecutor won't be bipartisan, but solely the action of the opposition party in the House when it's in the majority. Public support won't matter much, much less will it be needed. Impeachment will be applied equally to a first or second term presidency. So it didn't matter if you have an electoral remedy and it will become useful in a reelection year to help drive down the incumbent's popularity. That's certainly what the framers had in mind, didn't they? Three. 
No need to specify treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors in any impeachment read against the president. Just abstractions like obstruction and abuse of power are good enough. Special counsels and special prosecutors are now irrelevant. The Washington top echelon of the CIA, FBI, NSA will be largely immune from oversight. Reverse targeting of political opponents will be the normal behavior of intelligence agencies working closely with an incumbent lame duck administration. No, let's say he he gets reelected in 2020. And then, you know, so he'll be out in 2024. So in advance of the 2024 election, he'll weaponize the FBI and the CIA to engage in political espionage against whoever the Democrat nominee for president is in 2024. Is that uh, that what you think is uh, appropriate? That kind of free society you want to live in? That's political fair play. Seventh, the media like academia and Hollywood are now an extension of the progressive party. For example, CNN, as we've been discussing. Presidential candidates can hire four nationals to aid their campaign by collecting embarrassing innuendo and rumor and then used both high government officials and members of the Washington and New York media to disseminate and publicize damaging rumors about a political rival, Steele dossier. FISA courts will favor status quo government narratives, especially in matters of controversial candidates and political races. Whistleblowers never need to be identified. This is the new political climate. And VDH writes, it's obvious that both George Bush and Barack Obama could have easily been impeached under such protocols after they lost their party's majority in the House of Representatives. From now on, their successors will enjoy no such exemptions. We are now on new anti-constitutional constitutional grounds, and the United States will probably never return to the constitutional customs and traditions of its first 233 years. So that's what we should be prayerful about. That's why this moment is a somber one. That's why we should be reluctant to encourage the abuse of powers enshrined in the Constitution for the House and the Senate, respectively, which is where the real abuse of power is currently ongoing. And lest uh, you forget and forget to share some of the indelible moments of the week within your circles of influence, Mitch McConnell encapsulated them nicely for you to memorialize in a speech on the Senate floor yesterday. After weeks of delay, the Speaker of the House decided yesterday that a trial could finally go forward. She signed the impeachment papers. That took place, Madam President, at a table with a political slogan stuck onto it. And they posed afterwards for smiling photos. And the speaker distributed souvenir pens to her own colleagues emblazoned with her golden signature that literally came in on silver platters. The pens literally came in on silver platters. A souvenir to celebrate the moment. In addition to that, what McConnell had to say about those prayerful, somber, reluctant Democrats. They were uh, celebratory upon the signing of the Articles of Impeachment and the uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe procession over to the Senate with them. And then uh, positively giddy yesterday with what they thought was new bits of important evidence that the Senate would have to consider the Lev Parnas allegations in his interviews on CNN and MSNBC. And then this GAO report that suggests that the administration broke the law by withholding the security funds for Ukraine uh, back last year, last summer. Summer that is disputed by the Office of Management and Budget. And again, GAO is an administrative body that serves the legislature, serves Congress. It is not a law enforcement body. But nonetheless, this is what they're hanging their hat on. Uh, with respect to Lev Parnas and the allegations he made yesterday that, I mean, I, you know, the nature of them, even if you took what he said at face value, which I'm not suggesting you do, if, if he were accurate in everything he said that uh, Bill Barr was involved and so on and so forth, then I guess he would have Bill Barr speaking untruths. But uh, the Justice Department has rejected the 
the characterization that Parnas made. Uh, what is he, is he saying uh, things that are true or is he saying things that are untrue? This was some, again, uh, personnel decisions here in the Trump administration and in Trump world generally. This is some flunky that was some hanger on of Giuliani and uh, he was part of whatever Giuliani was doing in Ukraine. So tr- Trump, Trump knew that Giuliani was in Ukraine. He dispatched him. Uh, the particulars of what he knew vis-a-vis whatever Giuliani was doing, unclear. But that's not, that, that, that's not what Parnas is alleging. He's alleging things. He's alleging, so, yeah, this was always about Biden. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, he's alleging things that are contained in part in the transcript of the July 25th call between Trump and Zelensky. And then he's imputing onto those things ill motives and then suggesting things that uh, uh, he doesn't know to be true and now have been rejected by the Ukrainian foreign minister, such as the pressure that was ostensibly put being put on the Zelensky administration by both the president and then the vice president. And again, uh, some of the pictures, he was clearly in tow with Rudy Giuliani when he took a picture of the president. And lest we forget, he's under federal indictment of the Southern District of New York for campaign finance related charges. And he's essentially trying to leverage his value as an impeachment witness to try to serve his interests in avoiding prosecution or lessen potential punishment for the crimes he's alleged to have committed by federal authorities in New York. He wants a star turn. This was very reminiscent of Michael Cohen, very reminiscent of Michael Avenatti. And uh, we know how that worked out for those two Michaels. That Vadim Presteko, Ukrainian foreign minister, Zelensky's right hand guy when it comes to these geopolitical matters and communications with the United States, both the president and his administration, members of Congress, particularly as it relates to military aid. Here's what he said. It's all, all, all Ukrainian media as well today and yesterday. And strangely enough, my name was not mentioned, although I'm Minister of Foreign Affairs. And uh, frankly, I never spoke with this individual. And again, frankly, I don't trust any word he is now saying. The assistance which we, he is uh, referring to was reviewed on each and every year annually, at least twice, and half a year at the end of the year. So when you that this assistance is to be reviewed sometimes it would be cut because of the some political understanding of what is to be done in ukraine sometimes being raised which is now we're observing at the end of the year we would receive even more than it was planned i i understand that this individual which i don't know personally but he is now trying to save his own case and i again i don't trust what he's saying and i would you know i was so tired of these questions about the our role in impeachment what we are trying to tell Americans that we are, we are so happy to have bilateral support from both parties, and we will be happy to have it as well. Thank you. And a specific allegation that Parnas made, again, that Pence was dispatched as an uh, emissary of Trump's to put pressure on Zelensky. They were going to no-show the inauguration, and that's why they did, because he didn't launch the Burisma investigation. That's essentially what Parnas had suggested in those interviews. Well, here's what Prosteco says to that. I can tell you why. We had uh, some, some blame can be on our side because we had to do it in very fast way. President Zelensky wanted to leave the parliament free from, from his new presidency. And we have just a couple of days to make it legal. We've been, been, we've been limited by ourselves by time. So we gave quite a short notice to all the nations. And in our case, in the American case, Secretary Perry came. We believe that we would have somebody else if we want to if you give more, more time for the uh, foreign delegations. So it was not a big deal for us. At least 
We didn't feel it. Whatever these individuals are saying, we invited, given just one week prior notice to delegations, and we received Secretary Perry, which was a good representation and good level, and I was at the conversations with Secretary Perry as well. Mm -hmm. And anything of the sort you were just referring never been mentioned in none of these of this conversations. Hmm. So uh, why aren't Democrats calling the Ukrainians liars? Why not get after Zelensky and Prosteko? Mark on the west side. Yeah, the one thing I have not heard is any sort of a defense for Trump. And he's got all these people that could easily clear his name, but he, he blocks them from testifying. What's your answer to that? My answer to that is you have somebody exerting their rights, executive privilege, and the Democrats have every opportunity to litigate that if they want. Uh, with respect but to, if, uh, I'm not done. With respect to uh, people that typical. offer... With, with, typical? Yeah, I'd like to finish my answer. i let you finish your question. So you want to shut up and listen, or do you want to go away? You don't like when people have a, 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 a point against you. No, I don't. I don't I, want I, to hear that. No, I have... I actually have. I actually have. I actually have no problem. Some truth I actually out. have no problem. I let you ask your question, and I was answering, and then you interrupted because, in point of fact, you're the one spinning, and you don't want to listen to an answer. You just want to talk over me. And unfortunately, Mark, it's not your show. Later, now that I'm not going to be interrupted by Mark, you punk. You had the president assert his executive privilege within his rights. What would your lawyer tell you to do? If you were his client, assert your rights or not assert your rights. And then you have courts of law to litigate the matter. The House Democrats chose not to pursue that remedy. That's a fact. In terms of other people rallying to the president's defense on the sum and substance of his conduct, I could send you as, as many op-eds as could fill the studio we're in of people suggesting from the OMB to the transcript of the phone call that this, even if you don't like the particular language, even if you don't like the particular intonations, this is nothing that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, a little segment we call sports and politics. Uh, politics uh, insinuates itself in something. It's like George Washington said about the power to tax. It's uh, the power to destroy. And one wonders if this is where a line will ultimately be drawn with respect to the uh, trans political movement. I don't know. I don't know if there's enough people courageous enough to stand up to those uh, that are politically aggressive, the, uh, those who operate with accusation and shame. They may not agree with them, but they may just stand down. It's happening in professional sports. It's happening at the K-12 through level. It's uneven, but it's happening. As William Gibson said, the future is here. It's just distributed unevenly. Well, that may be the case with the elimination of women from sport. Is that what you want? Your daughter to be marginalized with respect to opportunities to participate in sports? And I'm just talking about uh, as she is growing up, when you have those lessons to be taken away from being part of a team, from playing sports, all those great lessons. Do you want men identifying as women to displace your daughter from the volleyball team, the basketball team, the golf team. Uh, the latest example of what I speak, Walt Heyer writing about this, DailySignal.com. 
Walt Heyer, by the way, an individual who transitioned and then transitioned back. And uh, people like him don't get much play in the media as well. Who, people who say, you know, I thought that was what my problem was, and I recognize, no, that was just a salve for the brokenness I was feeling, but it was, an, it was a solution that uh, it, was a, it was not a solution to my brokenness. And so, um, you know, the gender dysphoria issue. But I digress. I get to this, uh, this uh, development in sports. The World Long Drive Competition it, uh, has a women's division. And an Australian named Jamie O'Neill, who is born male, now identifying as female, holds a big advantage over his female competitors. You know why? Because he's a man. (laughs) He's stronger. It's just a physiological, biological fact. Science, right? The party of science? Uh Uh-huh. Men are physically stronger than women on average. A study in the Journal of Applied Physiology found that men had an average of 26 pounds more skeletal muscle mass than women. Women also exhibited about 40% less upper body strength and 33% less lower body strength. That's important to note, even in a non-contact sport like golf, and I know as a golfer, because, you know, it's as in tennis, your lower body strength, your uh, the, the speed at which you can uh, generate, the clubhead speed you can generate, the torque you can generate, that uh, determines how far you hit the ball. And since how far you hit the ball is the whole point of the world long drive competition, it's sort of unfair to have a man competing with women. Let me give you some stats to highlight this, just thinking at the pro level. The top 100 players on the men's tour, on the PGA, top 100 players all have an average driving distance of more than 300 yards. The top LPGA player in terms of driving distance, Yanni Sang, 276 yards. And then, you know, on down to 270 to round out the top 10. That is a ma- major difference. And the argument that has been advanced, the other argument that's been advanced, and just so we get to the science of this, the idea is that, well, once you transition, you have the reassignment surgery, lower testosterone then that sort of equals out in terms of the competitive advantage strength. Well, that's not true. A 2019 study published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism explored the effects of gender-affirming treatment on muscle function size and composition during 12 months of therapy and found that transgender women generally maintain their male muscle strength, size, and competition. The researchers said the changes in strength were modest so that effectively you still have your biological strength advantage over women. So just saying you know, once you fully transitioned, your, your, the, the integrity of women's sports has been protected, but that's not true. It's not true. And we know this at the upper reaches of sport. We know it when Annika Sorenstam tried to play in the men's tour briefly. We know it from even what Serena Williams said before she recanted because of politics and sports. That's the title of our segment here, which is that no way I wouldn't be in the top 100 on the men's tour, the men's tennis tour. Serena Williams, one of perhaps the best female tennis player of all time, wouldn't be in the top 100. She said that a couple of years before a year or two ago when John McEnroe said it, then John McEnroe got in all kinds of trouble and Serena had to pretend to be offended. He said the same thing she had said a couple of years earlier. It's just a fact. As hard as she hits the ball, perhaps 
one of the most powerful women's tennis players of all time. I mean, that's nothing compared to what how Djokovic hits the ball, hits the tennis ball, the speed of his serve. Just inherent strength advantage. It's craziness. All right, so that's one uh, installment there. The other story I wanted to get to, the intersection of sports and politics. <laughs> this is a bit bit of a reach, but I just had to get to it. The uh, recently concluded national championship game with LSU defeating Clemson for the national college championship. At the game in New Orleans at the Mercedes-Benz Superdome was Kelly Holstein, who from her Twitter feed I know prefers the pronouns she slash her because she's got those next to her name brother. Uh, She's the Minnesota 2019 Teacher of the Year. And so through an organization called Extra Yard for Teachers, she was allowed to, uh, you know, provided an opportunity to attend the game with uh, some other teachers. During the national anthem, she took a knee. I just decided it felt like the right thing to do to have a very respectful protest. And of course, who is she protesting? Yeah, you guessed it. Uh, The same person, Colin Kaepernick, is protesting, although I doubt she'll get a Nike deal. Uh, The Trump administration kneeling for the anthem to protest on behalf of communities that are allegedly oppressed under President Trump. Okay, fine. But I just, the the look-at-me-nature of this, some teacher, and I respect teachers, but she's just a nobody on the sidelines, and she does the kneel down so that everybody can look at me and uh, some people can write stories about her so she gets her little star turn at protesting Trump. I mean, this has been going on for so long. It's thankfully died down because it's so uh, navel-gazing and silly. But one of the silliest stories I've ever heard in this vein, this is a great story. And this is back in 2016 now, how long this nonsense has been going on. You know, basically since uh, Trump arrived on the political scene in full blossom. Clay Travis describing <laughs> describing what happened at a neighborhood fun run. The great uh, sports writer, sportscaster Clay Travis. Listen to this story. This past weekend, Friday night. My wife went on a fun run in our neighborhood. Uh, it's like one of these glow runs or something, like for, for cancer research. You run like a 5K. I'll be damned if they didn't sing the national anthem before this fun run. Whatever, there's margaritas, beer. It's a charity event. Nobody's trying to set the record in the, in the 5K. A dude took a knee while an 8-year-old girl sang the national anthem <laughs> in the local neighborhood charity run. Uh... Can you try harder than to take a knee while an eight-year-old girl sings a charity-run national anthem in a local neighborhood in this country? Is there anything more sad than the vacuous virtue signaler? Really? This is the Dan Prof Show. All you gotta do is put a drink in my hand. The feeling. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Coming up, we have Les Knight. He is a volunteer, I believe founder, of what is called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. 
mentioned him before on this show because he uh, wrote a piece recently for The Guardian explaining the campaign to stop procreation. No, not like a China one-child policy. Not like a Paul Ehrlich stop a two-child policy. Like a stop procreation altogether so as to return our planet to its former glory. Of course, uh, this is inextricably linked to environmentalism, making an ecological preservation. And so uh, let's hear from our friend Patrick Moore, who's the co-founder of Greenpeace. No longer Philly, but with co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, very concerned with the environment and ecological matters himself on uh, what the climate apocalyptic uh, soothsayers focus on, which is carbon, CO2. So then what about carbon dioxide, the great villain of the global warming alarmists? Where does that fit into this picture? Not as neatly as you might think. Temperatures and carbon dioxide levels do not show a strong correlation. In fact, over very long time spans, periods of hundreds of millions of years, they are often completely out of sync with one another. Over and over again, within virtually any time frame, we find the climate changing for reasons we do not fully understand. But we do know there are many more factors in play than simply the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. Factors such as the shape and size of the Earth's elliptical orbit around the Sun, activity from the Sun, and the amount of wobble or tilt in the Earth's axis, among many others. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Les Knight, volunteer in the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Les, thank you for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Um, so um, you write in your piece that I referenced at The Guardian that in terms of arguing against procreation, procreation today, you write, is the moral equivalent of selling births on a sinking ship. Explain what you mean by that. Yes, right. When you think about uh, the direction we are headed and you think about a person born today, you have to imagine what the world is going to be like 80 years from now, because that's the lifespan of a person uh, born in America today. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah, you're saying. Oh, oh yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it, it could be that uh, life will be better, but until we uh, start going in that direction, we have to assume that uh, it may not be as uh, as pleasant as it is today. Well, I mean, in terms of life being better, um, just some data to, to round out the decade that just passed. Global poverty has plummeted from about 35 percent in 1990 to less than 10 percent today. Child mortality has fallen by 60 percent during that same period. Our CO2 emissions in the United States are actually down by 12 percent since 2005. So there seems to be a lot of indication that life is getting better for a wider swath of the global population. So why phase us out? Yes, right. The, uh, the statistics do uh, show that things are improving, especially when you go by the average, uh, since there are so many more of us than there used to be. Well, for example, there are nearly a billion people experiencing uh, food insecurity. And if we were uh, becoming fewer of us each day instead of more of us, we might be able to feed everybody uh, on the planet. Well, is, is uh, the food, food insecurity a problem of food production or is it a problem of uh, human corruption with respect to governments that uh, ravage their own people, ravage their land as well? But it's not an ability to produce enough food to feed the world. It's it's a human problem, uh, corruption, infrastructure, and the like. Oh, that is definitely a factor, a very major factor, and also waste of food is a factor. But these things have always been uh, going on, and I'm not sure that we can uh, completely eliminate them. We need to work on it, try, try our best. But in the meantime, we also 
need to stop creating more people than we can take care of. Well, I and and, and I, I guess I, I'm not sure what the magic number is. And, and, you know, I mean, all of these predictions, you make mention that you joined a zero population growth movement after reading Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb in the late 60s. Well, Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb, largely by his own admission and the bet he lost to Julian Simon, those uh, apocalyptic predictions about mass famine in the 70s just didn't come to pass. So, so why are, should we be so confident about uh, those sort of devastating predictions today. Yes, he, he did uh, not account for the Green Revolution that put uh, agriculture on uh, performance-enhancing drugs and uh, managed to turn everything around agriculturally. But the benefits of that are beginning to diminish. And I, I think what Paul Ehrlich would say today is that his timing was off by several decades. Uh, it isn't that he was wrong. It's just that he, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, when you look at the agricultural trends, uh, they, they aren't as good as they used to be. So, no, I don't go by the population bomb today. That was like 1968. <clears throat> uh, I want to pick up this uh, discussion of the, you know, the problem with humanity or the humans uh, when we come back with last night. Be right back with more last night in the Dan Proctor. And his nasty old kid in nasty happiness, nasty Dan. He's a nasty man, hard to understand, that nasty Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Les Knight. He's a volunteer in the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, which he uh, founded uh, some uh, three-plus decades ago. And uh, we were talking about uh, his belief that we need to stop human beings from procreating post-haste. And, uh, Les, I just, uh, let's just start from the premise that that's the right thing to do. Uh, how would you affect that? Oh, yes. I'm glad you brought that up because that really is the very most important thing. I think we need to have uh, universal reproductive freedom where everybody who doesn't want to procreate has the wherewithal to not procreate. And we're way, way uh, beyond that, behind that one. There are many people who are getting uh, pregnant who don't want to be pregnant. And we, we really need to address that. So we should have like what taxpayer financed vasectomies and sterilization and abortion then? Well, every dollar that uh, we spend on contraception saves $7 in uh, taxpayer expenses on down the road. So it, it actually figures out to be a good deal. Well, what about the people who do want to procreate? What are we to do about them? This is a voluntary movement. And so we should support people who want to with prenatal care and good child care, you know, help them out best we can, good education. So, so you want uh, taxpayers to finance both the contraception and the, uh, I assume, the other procedures I mentioned on the one hand for people who don't want to procreate, but then also also have the government finance the services associated with having a family. Well, it looks like both ways. So the people who don't want to procreate will be supporting those who do, and those who do procreate will be supporting those who don't. We're just uh, all helping each other out here. I see. And uh, with respect to the, uh, is is your call for the voluntary extinction of human beings on the planet, is that, uh, is that based on just that the problem of taking care of 
of, of 5 billion and 6 billion and 8 billion and 10 billion human beings? Or is it with respect to the environment and the belief that uh, human beings are going to destroy the planet? I think it's both almost equally. Mm-hmm. The uh, We haven't been talking about the environment very much, but we are causing the sixth grade extinction. And you know, the, uh, we're in all intertwined. The uh, loss of insects, our pollinators, is uh, going to affect us as much as it's going to affect uh, the biosphere. They are using uh, paintbrushes to pollinate fruit trees in Japan. It's gotten so bad about uh, not having pollinators. Um, so, with res- I mean, with people still procreating, some people still procreating, so you still have some human sure. beings here. So then, so then what should we be doing in a policy perspective to uh, provide for those who are here and to protect the environment? I mean, for example, are you supportive of some version of the Green New Deal that's being bandied about in this country? Well, I think uh, people need to decide that for themselves, but I'm all for whatever increases freedom. If we have more freedom to uh, not procreate or freedom to uh, procreate in a uh, healthful way, uh, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. I'm not sure if the Green New Deal approach, uh, addresses that. Well, so uh, what's, what's procreating in a helpful way versus a non-helpful way? Well, there's a, an organization called uh, Having Kids, which encourages, uh, well, they're saying uh, only have one so you can take better care of them. Two, if you can afford it and they can do well. But their idea is that society and families should really focus on uh, having kids if they're going to have them and uh, do it right instead of a uh, haphazard way we're doing it now. You, you talk about wanting to maximize freedom, but at the same time, you're talking about uh, taxpayers being compelled to finance the choices of other people. How do you square those two? We do have to take care of each other. I don't think that we can just say uh, everybody has to uh, provide for themselves because of the uh economic inequality, when we say, well, everybody pay for your own uh, child care and, uh, and schooling and, and everything, uh, a lot of people are going to be left out and society as a whole will suffer from that. Uh, I mean, how do you react when you, you see uh, some politicians like Ocasio-Cortez or activists like Greta Thunberg say, you know, we have 10 or 12 years to save the planet or it's going to be too late. And so these are the steps that we must take, like deindustrializing the American economy. I mean, are you supportive of uh, that approach to dealing with uh, what they say are, uh, uh, are existential threats to our planet? Well, anytime you put a time limit on it like that, you're asking for trouble. I mean, things are, need to be changed right now. We, don't, we can't wait 12 years, but things are changing quickly. You probably have wind power your station is wind. They probably can power things with wind in a windy city, but without the detrimental effects of burning fossil fuels. So there are a lot of things that can be done without yeah. damaging people's economics. Yeah, the, the hot air from the politicians in Chicago can power a lot of things, there's no question. But, but, but <laughs> I've when, heard that, yes. <laughs> but when it, comes to, when it comes to converting to alternative energy, I mean, for example, you know, building one wind turbine requires 900 tons of steel, 2,500 tons of concrete, 45 tons of non-recyclable plastic, Solar power requires even more cement, steel, and glass, not to mention other metals. So, you know, there's not, it's not carbon-free to make this transformation that people are talking about. 
No, absolutely not. And that's why we need to reduce the demand as well by having fewer offspring. So, oh, so this is, I see. So that's so less less people than less energy required and, and a better planet. That would be part of your argument. That's exactly right, Dan. You got it. And so is there anything that we can do? I mean, say there are those innovations in food production and, frankly, governance around the world that uh, Paul Ehrlich didn't predict when he wrote Population Bomb. You know, you have companies like Plenty doing vertical farming in warehouse space rather than having having to use as much land as we used to use before technological innovation to produce, uh, frankly, to be more efficient in production than some of the big uh, family farms. Uh, Things like that that are difficult to predict, those kinds of innovations, would that change your mind at all if we were able to provide for all the people on the planet, uh, regardless of how many there are? Well, that would certainly be an improvement if we could uh, take care of everybody, feed everybody. Uh, But we also have to consider all of the other species that we're sharing the planet with. The vertical gardens do take up less space, so we don't have to go out into uh, nature to to convert it to uh, agriculture. But wherever we live, not much else lives. And we got to live somewhere. So the more of us there are, the fewer of them there are. And uh, and, and in your view, are are, uh, all forms of life, animal, plant, human life, are they sort of morally equivalent? Yes, uh, of course. We're all morally uh, equivalent. dependent on each other. But, but, but I mean, so in terms of the eyes of uh, sort of resources and uh, you know, standing, uh, sentience and sapience, the sapience part doesn't matter. We're all on the same moral plane, animals, plants, and humans. Well, I don't know. We do make decisions. When I kill an ant in my house, it's not the same as somebody killing a tiger in India. But, um, but all, all species uh, interact. We, uh, we co-evolved, and we're all dependent on each other. So even though I don't really think much of ants when I kill them, the ants are important to our survival as a whole. Uh, last night, we'll have to leave it there. Last night, volunteer on the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Les, thank you for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In a fun moment uh, in the halls of Congress yesterday between Arizona Senator Martha McSally and fungible CNN reporter Manu Raju. You know, the sort of gotcha hallway question that uh, journalists like to do. Well, uh, Martha McSally was ready for it. Senator McSally, should the Senate consider new evidence as part of the impeachment trial? Man, you're a liberal hack. I'm not talking to you. You're not going to comment? Senator, you made that pretty clear, Manu. Yeah, Manu, Manu. Uh, she is not going to talk to you because you're a liberal. The way she said it, too, I really liked the emphasis. She went on uh, Laura Ingram yesterday. Last night, did uh, Martha McSally to uh, explain her uh, lack of interest in talking to Manu and probably a lot of other liberal hacks at CNN as well. As you know, I mean, these these CNN reporters, but many of them around the Capitol, uh, they are so biased. Uh, They are so in cahoots with the Democrats. They so can't stand the president and they run around trying to chase, you know, Republicans and ask trapping questions. I'm a fighter pilot. You know, I called it like it is. Uh, you did call it like it is. There's no question about it. And to uh, prove up that uh, he's not the only liberal hack at CNN, 
Then Jake Tapper does a story asking for comment uh, from the McCain family on Martha McSally, and they basically say there's no love loss between us and her. Well, what does that have to do with anything? It's just a way to, oh, you called uh, Manu a liberal hack, so we're going to go get somebody to say they don't like you. That's what journalism is, real substantive, the substance of a fifth-grade playground. Uh, interestingly, it's also not just it's not just uh, flacking for Democrats. It's particular Democrats, as we witnessed this week with CNN's debate and the way that uh, one of the moderators went after Bernie Sanders about this whole tortured who he said she said at a dinner between Sanders and Warren back in the day and did he say a woman can't be elected president or did you just say, hey, you, you woman, you, Elizabeth Warren, are the one I don't think you'd be elected president. So stay out of the race and clear the, the socialist communist lane for me. Uh, Matt Taibbi at Rolling Stone on the combination of the way the debate was handled and then all of the panels that saw sawdust for the 24 hours subsequent or 24 hours after the debate to drive the CNN narrative against Bernie Sanders. Matt Taibbi writing over a 24 hour period before, during and after the debate. CNN bid farewell to what remained of its reputation as a non-political actor via a remarkable stretch of factually dubious reporting, bent commentary and heavy handed messaging. That's Matt Taibbi, man of the left. And uh, in my best James Earl Jones, that paragraph describing CNN, this is CNN. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Prop Show. As we've had uh, Comrade Bernie's Iowa apparatchik extolling the virtues of gulags this week, thanks to the undercover work of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, his team. Uh, yeah, the gulags to re-educate people, to de-Trump them, de-Trumpify them after uh, dear leader Bernie's victory in November. Remarkable, remarkable that somebody who was uh, lauding the Cuban economy 30 years ago as better than the United States, singing the praises of the Soviet Union 30 years ago uh, on Soviet soil, could be a leading contender for the Democrat Socialist nomination for president, but it's real, it's happening. And of course, we've talked about the survey research showing how attractive words like socialism, even communism are to millennials and younger, even though those younger than millennials who are on college campuses right now. It calls to mind Alexander Solzhenitsyn, of course, Gulag Archipelago, and what he wrote about 35 years ago, about the time Bernie was jaunting off to the Soviet Union with Jane for their honeymoon, Solzhenitsyn, who ironically was in exile from the Soviet Union in the 80s in Vermont. <laughs> Bernie and Alexander didn't cross paths. He, uh, 
He uh, wrote, if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this happened. Talking about the uh, communist repression during the life of the Soviet Union in the 20th century. Well, this certainly brings to mind Venezuela, which is an example that none of the Democrat socialists in America want to talk about. But it's uh, very real and it has appeal in certain quarters on the left. We know because a contingent of the Chicago Teachers Union went down to Caracas to praise the school system under Maduro in Venezuela incredibly. And then they came back here and rewarded with a pay raise the city of Chicago can't afford. But no, of course, nothing like what happened in the Soviet Union, nothing like what happened happening in Venezuela could happen here. Right. Well, uh, and uh, we've talked to Venezuelans on the ground before. We're pleased to be joined by two more who are exiles of Venezuela. Jorge Galicia and Andres Guillarte are uh, touring college campuses in America, trying to disabuse college students of the notion that uh, socialism will usher in some uh, utopian wonderland. Andres, Jorge, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Uh, whoever wants to start, Andres, why don't we start with you? I mean, you guys are both in your mid-20s, so you're millennials. Tell us about what you're conveying to students on college campuses in America about what you know about your home of Venezuela. Well, actually, I'm the, the message we're trying to give these students is a worrying message. It's a worrying message that those policies that they hear from some politicians are the same policies that our society used to hear in the mid-80s and the, in the 90s, even before Chavez came to power. Because all Venezuelan problem is not just about Chavez, it's even before him. So we're trying to give them a warning that all this news they see about Venezuela, all the violence, that's just the conclusion of a whole story that started with some politicians trying to target free stuff to people. And that's what we're trying to give to the students. It's interesting uh, you point out how there's an evolution to this, right? It happened gradually over the course of several generations and then suddenly under Chavez and now Maduro. And it was the unwillingness to live within your means and instead to believe beautiful lies that were told by politicians. I just want you to talk to how socialism was marketed in Venezuela and the similarities between some of the rhetoric you heard from politicians there and what you're hearing from politicians in America. Well, one of the key similarities uh, will be like when, when Charles got to power, he did, he never called himself a socialist. He said he was a humanist. But as soon as he got to power, like one year later, he started this agenda about 21st century socialism. And he started with something that you hear in America, like, you know, we need, we need to empower the poor, being rich is bad. This kind of stuff, and since Venezuela was not going through a really good moment, and there was a, a lot of population living in poverty, well, China was just trying to speak to those people. And you, you know, when that's that's one of the problems in, with, uh, with 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 the government, and the politicians, is that it's really easy when you make a campaign and just speaking like we're going to help poor people, we're going to start giving, giving free stuff, we're going to attack the rich because they're the problems of society. And a lot of people like to hear that kind of message. And that, that, one of, what, what, that was one of the key factors that helped the socialism get the spread in the country. And also because Chavez was a really charismatic uh, person in the moment. What's, what's the sense from Venezuelan families now about the uh, bill of goods they were clearly sold? Do you think there is a recognition of the road to perdition that they were led down? So how are you being how are you guys being received on college campuses here? How are the students reacting to what you have to say? Well, so far it's 
is an, an uh, more positive than anything situation because our message. I mean, we speak from a personal a personal perspective. I mean, we show. We, we, I just have one one year here, and Jorge has a year and a half. So we have a really fresh perspective of what is what is living under under socialism hell. So I'm a family there. My whole family is in Venezuela. So we we give this perspective, this message, this real experience over there. And you know, there's a, you, you can disagree with what we're saying. We, we know what we're talking about. So the only disagreement we find in these college campuses is. It's like, okay, everything that is going on in Venezuela is horrible, but that's not going to happen here in the U.S. And some politicians that are not trying to get the Venezuelan model, they're trying to the Nordic model. Like, for example, that's what Bernie says, that he doesn't want this, uh, that socialism. He wants the Nordic socialism. And therefore, we have to, we have to make researches about the Nordic models to, in order to answer these questions. And the, 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 more, common question, the more common answer is, in the Nordic countries, there is no socialism. That is actually capital, capitalism. And what happened in Venezuela is real socialism. And the, the key similarity is that before everything happened in Venezuela, everything, everyone said that we're not going to be like Cuba. And we end up being worse than Cuba. So when everyone starts saying that they're not going to be like Venezuela, that, that's like the wrong path because you're going to end up worse well, right. I mean, why if it's if you're pursuing the same policies, Bernie Sanders, uh, government takeover of health care, government for free college, free this, free that entitlement, this entitlement that if you're going to pursue the exact same policies and, 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 and set up the same systems that were set up in Cuba and Venezuela, why would it turn out any different? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what is uh, most, uh, you know, war. Uh, I worry a lot, a lot when I see all of these uh, proposals from the democratic field. You know, Medicare for all, college for free for all, expand social security. I mean, all you know, both political parties should be discussing how to, you know, to to low to lower the mini, the, the the levels of debt and the levels of of public spending. They are already way too high. How are you going to afford even more social security, more Medicare, more 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 free free things? That is not sustainable. We should be discussing the other way around. How how do we cut the budget? Because not I mean nobody in America seems to be caring about this anymore. And sadly, not even not not even the Republican Party anymore. I mean, we 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 just had a, a whole Congress uh, controlled by uh, by by the Republicans and the presidency, of course, in in hands of Trump. And and you know the the deficit is, is still growing. So what's going on here? Yeah, that's uh, I, that's a fair yeah, point. That, that's really sad, you know. Well, and one <laughs> uh, one other parallel. I mean, that's a that's a salient point. One other parallel I just wanted to get to was nationalizing of industry. Hugo Chavez nationalizing uh, the oil sector and destroying uh, the the lifeblood of the Venezuelan economy. And uh, what we have going on here with the proposals for the Green New Deal to deindustrialize uh, deindustrialize the American economy and uh, transform our energy sector. Yeah, that, that was that that was and still is one of the key factors that led to this to this disaster in Venezuela. Because and and, and you have to go back to the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s because the national debt at that moment was just growing and growing and growing. And the government started, you know, to print money to take money from from somewhere, and that that created inflation. And just but Chavez go went even farther, and he started nationalizing a lot of industries. So, um, and not just industry, even stores. I mean, he just wanted to take everything he could to gain more money. 
And the thing is that eventually all these industries and businesses that they rationalized, they all went to bankruptcy because they didn't they don't they don't know how to take this industry to you, you know to, to actually make profit. So that, that 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 is one of the key factors that, that destroyed the whole in the industrial complex of, of Venezuela. And that, you're right, that's one of the key similarities here because eventually when the government wants to, you know, finance everything and give a lot of stuff to everyone, they, they have to get the money from somewhere. And it seems like pockets of the citizens is not enough. So they want to get businesses and they want to get a lot of industries. And eventually, you know, everything just falls apart. The, uh, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Jorge Galicia, Andres Gallarte. These are uh, two Venezuelan young men that are traveling to college campuses around America, telling the story about Venezuela as a cautionary tale. Appreciate what you're doing. Good luck on the college campuses, and thank you for joining us. Oh, no, thank, thank you so much for the invitation. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, this is a conversation we have to have in conservative circles, and there's not a lot of people that seem uh, desirous to have it at present. And I know there's a lot of distractions with impeachment in the 2020 election, but nevertheless, um, you know, there always has to be sort of a why question. Why are we doing what we're doing as conservatives uh, and, and expressing that through uh, mainly Republican office holders? Well, that's particularly important when it comes to economic policy, among other policies. And so over the last several months, the pronouncements on matters economic of Tucker Carlson and Marco Rubio at Catholic University, which we've talked about on the Dan Prof show here, as well as Josh Howley, the Republican senator from Missouri, they are charting a very different course, uh, I guess under the rubric, Marco Rubio's rubric of common good capitalism than traditional free market conservatives like, say, me uh, or William F. Buckley, the godfather would uh, have us chart. George Will is a columnist for the Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, commentator for NBC and MSNBC, and he's written a piece on this uh, specifically focused on one of the gentlemen I mentioned, that's Senator Josh Howley. George Will, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. So um, you uh, tackle uh, Josh Howley's uh, description of what's happening in America and this problem that we have, according to Senator Howley, of of the Promethean ethic, and this needs to re- be replaced with something approximating a more, I don't know, communitarian ethic within Republican ranks, uh, the, as Marco Rubio terms it, common good capitalism. And anytime you start adding modifiers to words that don't need them, I get concerned. <laughs> well, well, you should. Uh, common, the phrase common good capitalism means to imply that the capitalism we have is not serving the common good. Whereas what capitalism is, is the summation of the free choices of American men and women as they go about their lives. That's what the, why capitalism is inseparable from freedom with limited government. Because what that means is that people are allowed to use their, their, their preferences and their resources as they choose 
in voluntary consensual cooperation with their fellows in society. Yeah, Senator Rubio in his speech set up a uh, uh, sort of a false choice, I thought, when he said, are we here to serve the market or is the market here to serve us? He treats the market as an abstraction rather than as us. And so my response is, well, um, who is to tell me what my interest is? Is it uh, me or is it Marco Rubio? Well, that's precisely the problem, because when you say you, you've, you're going to withdraw confidence in and support for market outcomes, you necessarily say that the market is not producing what we'll call the common good, and therefore it is up to the government to define the common good. Uh, both Mr. Hawley and Mr. Rubio tend to blame the problems in America, and Lord knows we have enough of them, on capitalism, on the free, unfettered choices of the American people. Now, there's no question that uh, in the dynamism of a growing economy, and only capitalism uh, provides uh, a certain path to growth, that in the dynamism of a growing economy, there are going to be casualties. Individuals will be casualties. Communities will be casualties. And there's nothing in conservatism that says the government should not... Uh, have ameliorative measures to help communities and individuals, to retrain individuals, to help communities attract new business, to help individuals move from communities to more promising places. So the idea that, that conservatism requires us to, to accept market outcomes with, without, uh, without any criticism is wrong. But we don't blame the market for these. We say that these are inevitable facts of life, and we'll try and try and deal with them. Let me give you one example. In the 1980s, when the American automobile industry in Detroit, in, uh, which was then almost entirely located in uh, in the north, particularly in Michigan, came upon hard times, suddenly Texans began to notice what they called the black tags. Those were Michigan license plates from people who had said, "Well." Michigan is no longer a promising place right now. We're going to move to Texas, where job creation is prodigious. Uh, so Americans have traditionally got up and moved uh, west, south, north, all over the place uh, in well, pursuit sure. of better, better times. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in the state of Illinois, which is scheduled to probably lose two congressional seats after the 2020 census, while Texas picks up three and Florida picks up two and so on and so forth. So... Absolutely, mobility is a real thing for all kinds of reasons. Yes, well, in in the uh, John Steinbeck's Depression-era novel, uh, The Grapes of Wrath, about the Joad family, yeah. when Oklahoma was struck by the, the one-two punch of the Depression and the Dust Bowl, the Joad family packed up its belongings and headed to Southern California, where, in fact, uh, we, we can assume, although it wasn't in the book, uh, they found employment and prosperity working in the aerospace industries during the Second World War. And I think uh, I understand from Elizabeth Warren that was the Grapes of Wrath based, uh, loose, uh, based loosely on her life, the way that she talks about <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> um, but uh, I, so, so what do you see going on with Rubio, with Howley, to, to a lesser extent with, with Tucker Carlson, because he's not so focused on the political constituency or necessarily Republican hegemony. But it seems to me they're looking for a philosophy to maintain the Trump constituency after Trump. Well, Tucker Carlson says uh, quite candidly he doesn't believe what he believed a few years ago. He's just changed all his beliefs, and he said that uh, 
when Elizabeth Warren is on her tear against capitalism, she sounds like Donald Trump at his best. A more thoughtful people. I mean, Tucker's an entertainer. Uh, Holly and Rubio are, are more thoughtful. I think what they are saying, look, Donald Trump discovered a constituency, a constituency of the disaffected, uh, the casualties, the left behind. And we're going to justify uh, concern for these these constituencies by blaming capitalism for their difficulties, whereas it seems to me the history of the human race from the late 18th century on, when almost all the human race economic growth has occurred, uh, we're going to blame it on capitalism, which has provided this economic growth. Just in the last 30 years, globalized free movement of people, ideas, and capital, the market in the world has raised, raised two to three billion people out of subsistence level poverty 30 years there's nothing in the whole human tale comparable to this staggering improvement in the human condition and just as we're seeing this the instrument of this improvement capitalism is being criticized it's rather perverse yeah and it's something that uh, even uh, you know the U2 frontman Bono he understands that he said ex- almost precisely what you've said about capitalism being the greatest force for pulling people out of poverty the world over so if Bono gets it you would hope uh, uh, Republican th- uh, politicians and conservative theoreticians would get it too. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's uh, it's concerning, and this is a, a conversation that's going to continue uh, into the 2020 and and after Trump's presidency, whether it's in 2020 or 2024. Uh, George Will, columnist for the Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize winner, commentator for NBC News and MSNBC. I will tweet out at Dan Proft his piece about uh, market skeptic Republicans. George, always a pleasure. Please give my regards to your son, Jeff, who I attended college with. Uh, Pleasure to have you on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. I'll sure do it. Thank you. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show, and I just can't get enough of the, this portion of Senate Majority Leader McConnell's speech on the House floor, yes, excuse me, the Senate floor yesterday, talking of golden pens and silver platters. After weeks of delay, the Speaker of the House decided yesterday that a trial could finally go forward. She signed the impeachment papers. That took place, Madam President, at a table with a political slogan stuck onto it. And they posed, they posed afterwards for smiling photos. And the speaker distributed souvenir pens, souvenir pens to her own colleagues emblazoned with her golden signature that literally came in on silver platters. The pens literally came in on silver platters. Golden pens on silver platters. A souvenir to celebrate the moment. And, uh, you know, it's all merchandising in this business, although I, I always did love the silver platters. It's good times. It's celebratory atmosphere. Why not include the silver platters? But, of course, what it really reminds you is the fraud that was the prayerful, somber 
reluctant House Democrats have, have that have the unfortunate duty of impeaching this president and arguing for his removal from office. They're saddened by the whole experience, of course. It's a fraud. There are Lady of Guadalupe procession from the House of the Senate over this week. It's all a fraud. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Lipson, who is the uh, a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Chicago, regular commentator, realclearpolitics.com and Spectator USA, as well as Legal Insurrection, which is a great blog, too. Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. So what about uh, the optics of this that uh, McConnell seized on to highlight what the House Democrats had been saying versus how they had been behaving? Nancy Pelosi made a real tactical mistake in how she handled the signature, and he just nailed it. Um, I, I'm actually reminded of a an old uh, gospel tune that says, "On the thirty third floor, a gold plated door won't keep out the Lord's burning wrath." <laughs> and uh, when you allow uh, Mitch McConnell, who is the opposite of a populist, mm. uh, to be able to make a populist uh, point about uh, it's populist, and it says, "Look, you are just." seriously uh, playing this as a political gambit. I've said for six months, none of this was about uh, removing the president uh, from office. It was all about tarnishing him in hopes of defeating him in the general election. It may well be backfiring. And uh, McConnell seems to be following the same approach that Kevin McCarthy took in the House, which is uh, different roles for different players. So uh, you want to bring uh, John Bolton over? Okay, um, I'm going to have Rand Paul go out there. So go ahead, bring John Bolton, and uh, we're going to call Hunter Biden, so it's going to be one for one. And uh, you want to have witnesses, or some Republicans are talking about witnesses. I'm putting Lindsey Graham out there to say, I want to get this crap over with as soon as possible, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And meanwhile, he seems to be trying to massage and keep everybody in the fold and have conversations with the squishier members of his caucus. It seems to be that uh, he's at least as good as McCarthy at managing his caucus, McConnell. I agree with that, but I want to uh, I want to add one more point. Uh, Compliments yours, but it's a somewhat different perspective, and that is <clears throat> there are about four or five members of his caucus who are in tough races in purple states. I mm-hmm. mean, we all know Susan Collins, but there's Cory Gardner in. Colorado and Martha McSally in Arizona and Tom Tillis in uh, North Carolina and so forth. Uh, And I think uh, Mitch McConnell is very attentive to their situations because if they lose uh, and he doesn't pick up uh, a number of other states, uh, such as Alabama, where there's a vulnerable Democrat, that he could lose his Senate majority. And that's absolutely crucial, uh, not only to, to Mitch McConnell, but to Trump himself, right? I mean, Trump's uh, cabinet appointments, and most especially his judicial appointments, depend not only on having a Republican majority, but having a large enough majority that he's not dependent on Lisa Murkowski and and some of the sort of moderate Republicans yeah. to push through who he really wants. Charles, so I think he's got to be very careful here and very attentive to what they want to do. And he may be leaving them scope to say, we'd like to call witnesses. We'd like to hear more. But 
Actually, the Democrats didn't want to do it. Charles, I want to pick up on that point when we come back. We're talking to Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Poli Sci from the University of Chicago. We'll be right back on the Dan Proctor. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Poli Sci at the University of Chicago, regular commentator at RealClearPolitics.com, Spectator USA, Legal Insurrection, talking about uh, impeachment uh, politics uh, and uh, Mitch McConnell managing his caucus. And uh, pick up the, the point that you were making, Charles, in the context of you know, giving the, some of these swing state Republican incumbents up for reelection some bandwidth to show some independence uh, and uh, and uh, reflection uh, when it comes to what the Democrats are demanding, which is namely witnesses uh, be called. But ultimately, what do you think is in the best interest of McConnell and Senate Republicans? Is it to have this go at least a couple of weeks and include witnesses? Or is it to force both sides to present their case and then have a vote straight away? Right now, I would say it's in their interest to have uh, a vote without witnesses, uh, but without looking like they're ramming it down everybody's throat. But you can expect um, the Blasey Ford treatment between now and then, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, the media is just going to be relentless in trying to dig up stuff. The fact that they're relying on Lev Parnas, who is, you know, he he makes uh, Michael Cohen look like a truth teller, <laughs> uh, this guy. and But everything they leak out is designed to put pressure on Trump to call witnesses. And I think what McConnell, uh, and led actually by Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, uh, have done is uh, put up a deterrent threat to the to the uh, Democrats, saying we'll call uh, our own witnesses. And the Democrats have to be worried that it won't actually be one for one, that they'll call a witness and then the president will invoke executive privilege so they won't get their witness and the Republicans will get theirs. But I don't think Mitch McConnell wants to turn this into a circus. Uh, I want to get your reaction to a column in National Review from Victor Davis Hanson where he he goes through uh, what the new Constitution will be post-Trump. Uh, and just some examples of what he the new constitution and, and sort of the new uh, the new politics post Trump private presidential phone calls with foreign leaders will be leaked and printed impeachment now a casual affair no need to specify treason bribery or other high crimes or misdemeanor just abstract terms like obstruction and abuse of power are sufficient special counsels now irrelevant uh, and he also uh, makes this point which I, I I want you to comment generally but then specifically on this one. The Washington top echelon of the CIA, FBI, and NSA will be largely immune from oversight. If they wish to spy on a presidential campaign, uh, a candidate, or curtail the options of a sitting president, they will easily use their powers of surveillance, leaking, and spying for political purposes, purposes mostly defined as protecting the status quo of the permanent government. 
I almost always agree with Victor Davis Hanson. In fact, I think that he is one of the most profound commenters on our current uh, situation uh, among all the people who who think and talk about it. But I want to say that on this, I think he's he's painting a picture of what would happen if nothing bad happens to these people now. And if what happens to uh, the Democrats in the House uh, is rather like what happened to the Republicans after impeaching uh, Bill Clinton the last time, that is, they were really punished by voters. Mm -hmm. If what happens to CIA and FBI senior officials and uh, uh, officials in the Obama White House who were part of the spying, uh, or the organized spying on Trump, both uh, as a campaigner, as in the transition and in the presidency, if they escape without any punishment, then that's one thing. But if they're all, but if there's serious indictments uh, of those people, there the people who leak and lie and try to cook. Uh, the justice system will will have pause. There'll be a deterrent threat, much like what happened uh, to uh, Soleimani. Now you you play it by different rules because there's a deterrent threat. The same is true, was true for uh, two decades after uh, what uh, the Republicans did to Bill Clinton, which the public thought, well, yeah, he committed crimes, but not enough to remove him from office, and the Democrats paid a price. I mean, that, the that's fair. Pay the price yeah, that, and if yeah. the Democrats pay a price now, this dystopian future that Victor Davis Hanson is painting really won't happen. But if you don't see uh, criminal, a criminal prosecution of someone of the stature of a Jim Comey, an Andy McCabe, uh, John Brennan, uh, perhaps uh, Obama era cabinet uh, officials. Uh, for things like the unmasking of General Flynn, which we knew was a crime and we still don't have any indication of who that was. If you don't see Durham come up with something like that with respect to holding those at the upper reaches of those alphabet soup agencies VDH mentions accountable under criminal law, then do you think what he is suggesting could be our new political norm? Absolutely. And worse, I think that people will think that uh, the swamp defends its own, that no matter what laws people violate, the laws that you or I would go to jail for, or ordinary member uh, of a submarine crew who takes a photograph for his girlfriend and, and turns out to be in, in standing in front of a piece of classified equipment, he goes to jail for a year. But these guys can leak constantly to the uh, classified material to the New York Times and Washington Post and nothing happens to I think uh, I just think it's a dreadful situation of course Trump will run against it but the media will beat with a relentless drum the fact nothing was wrong here all this was just a, a failed conspiracy theory and I think the people in the country won't buy it they'll just think Washington saves its own and they'll be right he is Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Poli Sci at the University of Chicago, regular commentator. Read his stuff at realclearpolitics.com, Spectator USA, and Legal Insurrection.
Charles, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Dan. Thank you. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And again, uh, follow me at danproftshow.com, on Twitter at Dan Proft and or at Dan Proft Show. And of course, uh, podcasts are also Spotify and iTunes. Uh, as we're, uh, you know, awaiting the start of the Senate impeachment trial. Uh, just some sort of uh, protocol aspects of it are interesting. At the beginning of each trial day, the sergeant at arms, his name is Michael Stanger, will declare, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, all persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. But if uh, senators don't keep quiet, if they uh, add some commentary to their written questions, uh, not to worry or Perhaps, unfortunately, there is no Senate jail they'll be uh, whisked off to. But, but it is remarkable to watch this, right? I mean, these we still have this sort of ruling class mentality among so many politicians and, frankly, among so many constituents who genuflect before these politicians who um, need to constantly be reminded, both parties, politicians need to be reminded they're not our betters and we, the people, need to be reminded that they're not our betters. Sometimes that gets lost. And maybe this will help. Have you seen this? A flashcard that has been passed out to uh, each and every U.S. senator uh, it, it, to assist them with dealing with the jackals in the Beltway media who uh, want them to talk uh, when given the opportunity, follow up from the day's proceedings and so forth. This uh, flashcard, phrases to use when seeking assistance. Please move out of my way. You are preventing me from doing my job. Please excuse me. I am trying to get to the Senate floor. Please excuse me. I need to get to a hearing meeting. Please do not touch me. <laughs> uh, not included. Hashtag Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Also, the idea, United States senators are betters. This august deliberative body. You need a laminated flashcard to have in your pocket in case somebody touches you so you know what to say and do. Please, uh, please help me. I don't know where I am. Please help me. I haven't been told what to say. Those could be other phrases that uh, to, to add, although they were not added. But it's just remarkable to me. Uh, the um, you talk about the infantilization of the public at the hands of government. Now, you know, sort of the the basis for it. Those in government themselves have been infantilized by sort of the uh, power centers in the two parties that treat members of their respective caucuses as, uh, you know, children to be looked after. And uh, in Illinois politics, I spent a good deal of time in Illinois politics, so I know very well the culture here. And it's uh, just as uh, kleptocratic as the D.C. culture. And that is absolutely how the few people who are actually pulling the levers treat those that are just voting the way they're told to vote. But this uh, this card, you got to see it. I'll tweet it out at Dan Proft and Dan Proft Show. This is really something to behold. 
reminding you they are not our betters. This is the Dan Prof Show. Have a great weekend. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.